0: We would be honored if you would join. Us.
1: Hey there, Far Far Away family! Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives, the web's most epic Star Wars show. I'm your host Kyle, and we're about to unleash a spectacular Halloween special edition. Hold on to your lightsabers, folks. For the next spine-chilling three weeks, on both Twisted Tuesday and Fightful Friday, we're diving into the eerie world of Star Wars Death Troopers. Because what screams Halloween more than Stormtrooper Zombies? All for a wickedly fun Halloween. Now give it up for my pal Rick Washington. This champ devoured the reading and recording of this story in just two days. And FYI, this isn't an old Republic tale, but rather it is set in the chilling era of the Empire, around 1 ABY. Given my absolute obsession with Halloween and Night Troopers making their live action debut in Ahsoka series, I thought, why not? So snap on your space helmets and buckle up, because you are in for a terrifying ride. Are you ready to get this story started? Let's jump into the thrilling tale right now.
0: The nights were the worst. Even before his father's death, Trig Longo had come to dread the long hours after lockdown, the shadows and sounds and the chronically unstable gulf of silence that drew out in between them. Night after night, he lay still on his bunk and stared up at the dripping durasteel ceiling of the cell in search of sleep or some acceptable substitute. Sometimes he would actually start to drift off, floating away in that comforting sensation of weightlessness only to be rattled awake, heart pounding, throat tight, stomach muscles sprung and fluttering by some shout or a cry, an inmate having a nightmare. There was no shortage of nightmares aboard the Imperial prison barge, Purge. Trigg didn't know exactly how many prisoners the Purge was currently carrying. He guessed maybe 500, human and otherwise, scraped from every corner of the galaxy, just as he and his family had been picked up eight standard weeks before. Sometimes, the incoming shuttles returned almost empty. On other occasions, they came packed with squabbling alien life forms and alleged rebel sympathizers of every stripe and species. There were assassins for hire and sociopaths the likes of which Trigg had never seen, thin-lipped things that cackled and sneered in seditious languages that, to Trigg's ears, were little more than clicks and hisses. Every one of them seemed to harbor its own obscure appetites and personal grudges, personal histories blighted with shameful secrets and obscure vendettas. Being cautious became harder. Soon, you needed eyes in the back of your head, which some of them actually possessed. Two weeks earlier in the mess hall, Trigg had noticed a tall, silent inmate, sitting with its back to him but watching him nonetheless, with a single raw red eye in the back of its skull. Every day the red-eyed thing seemed to be sitting a little nearer. Then one day, without explanation, it was gone. Except from his dreams. Sighing, Trigg levered himself up on his elbows and looked through the bars into the corridor. Gen Pop had cycled down to minimum power for the night, edging the long gangway in permanent gray twilight. The Rodians in the cell across from his had gone to sleep or were feigning it. He forced himself to sit there, regulating his breathing, listening to the faint echoes of the convict's uneasy groans and murmurs. Every so often a mouse droid or low-level maintenance unit, one of the hundreds occupying the barge, would scramble by on some pre-programmed errand or another. And of course, below it all, low and not quite beneath the scope of hearing, was the omnipresent thrum of the barge's turbines gnashing endlessly through space. For as long as they'd been aboard, Trig still hadn't gotten used to that last sound, the way it shook the purge to its framework, rising up through his legs and rattling his bones and nerves. There was no escaping it, the way it undermined every moment of life as familiar as his own pulse. Trig thought back to sitting in the infirmary just two weeks earlier, watching his father draw one last shaky breath and the silence afterward, as the medical droids disconnected the biomonitors from the old man's ruined body and prepared to haul it away. As the last of the monitors fell silent, he'd heard that low, steady thunder of the engines, one more unnecessary reminder of where he was and where he was going. He remembered how that noise had made him feel lost and small and inescapably sad, some special form of artificial gravity that seemed to work directly against his heart. He had known then, as he knew now, that it really only meant one thing. The ruthlessly grinding effort of the Empire consolidating its power. Forget politics, his father had always said. Just give them something they need or they'll eat you alive. And now they'd been eaten alive anyway. Despite the fact that they'd never been sympathizers. No more than low-level grifters scooped up on a routine Imperial sweep. The engines of tyranny ground on, bearing them forward across the galaxy towards some remote penal moon. Trigg sensed that noise would continue, would carry on indefinitely echoing right up until… Trig. It was Kale's voice behind him, unexpected, and Trigg flinched a little at the sound of it. He looked back and saw his older brother gazing back at him. Kale's handsomely rumpled, sleep-slackened face, just a ghostly three-quarter profile suspended in the cell's gloom. Kale looked like he was still only partly awake, and unsure whether or not he was dreaming any of this. "'Was wrong?' Kale asked. Trigg cleared his throat. His voice had started changing recently, and he was acutely aware of how it broke high and low when he wasn't paying strict attention. "'Nothing.' "'You worried about tomorrow?' "'Me?' Trigg snorted. Come on. It's okay if you are. Kale seemed to consider this and then uttered a bemused grunt. You'd be crazy not to be. You're not scared, Trigg said. Dad would never have. I'll go alone. No. The words snapped from his throat with almost painful angularity. We need to stick together. That's what Dad said. You're only thirteen, Kale said. Maybe you're not, you know... Fourteen next month. Trigg felt another flare of emotion at the mention of his age. Old enough. You sure? Positive. Well, sleep on it. See if you feel different in the morning. Kale's enunciation was already beginning to go muddled as he slumped back down on his bunk, leaving Trigg sitting up with his eyes still riveted to the long, dark concourse outside the cell. Genpop that had become their no longer new home. Sleep on it, he thought. And in that exact moment, miraculously, as if by power of suggestion, sleep actually began to seem like a possibility. Trig lay back and let the heaviness of his own fatigue cover him like a blanket, superseding anxiety and fear. He tried to focus on the sound of Kale's breathing, deep and reassuring, in and out, in and out. Then, somewhere, in the depths of the levels, an inhuman voice wailed. Trigg sat up, caught his breath, and felt a chill tighten the skin of his shoulders, arms, and back, crawling over his flesh millimeter by millimeter, bristling the small hairs on the back of his neck. Over in his bunk, the already sleeping Kale rolled over and grumbled something incoherent. There was another scream, weaker this time. Trigg told himself it was just one of the other convicts. Just another nightmare rolling off the all-night assembly line of the Nightmare Factory. But it hadn't sounded like a nightmare. It sounded like a convict, whatever life form it was, was under attack, or going crazy. He sat perfectly still, squeezed his eyes tight, and waited for the pounding of his heart to slow down. Just please slow down. But it didn't. He thought of the thing in the cafeteria, the disappeared inmate whose name he'd never know watching him with its red, staring eye. How many other eyes were on him that he never saw? Sleep on it. But he already knew there would be no more sleeping here tonight. In Trigg's old life back on Cimarosa, breakfast had been the best meal of the day. Besides being an expert trafficker in contraband, a veteran fringe-dweller who cut countless deals with thieves, spies, and counterfeiters, Von Longo had always been one of the galaxy's greatest unrecognized breakfast chefs. Eat a good meal early, Longo always told his boys. You never know if it's gonna be your last. Here on The Purge, however, breakfast was rarely edible, and sometimes actually seemed to shiver in the steady vibrations as though still alive on the plate. This morning, Trigg found himself gazing down at the pasty mass of colorless goo spooned into shaved gristle, the whole thing plastered together in sticky wads like some kind of meat nest assembled by carnivorous flying insects. He was still nudging the stuff listlessly around his tray when Kale finally raised his eyebrows and peered at him. You sleep at all last night? Kale asked. A little. You're not eating. What, you mean this? Trigg poked at the contents of the tray again and shuddered. I'm not hungry, he said, and watched Kale shovel the last bite of his own breakfast into his mouth with disturbing gusto. You think the food will be any better when we get to the detention moon? Little brother, I think we'll be lucky if we don't end up on the menu. Trigg gave him a bleak look. Don't give him any ideas. Hey, lighten up. Kale wiped his mouth on his sleeve and grinned. Little guy like you, they'll probably just use you for an appetizer. Trig put his fork down again with a snort, to show that he got the joke. Although he couldn't have articulated it, his big brother's easygoing bravado, so obviously inherited from their old man, made him downright envious. Kale wasn't wired for fear, it just didn't stick to him somehow. The only thing that ever really seemed to trouble him was the prospect of not getting another helping of whatever the COO 2180s behind the lunch counter had been slopping onto the inmates' trays. Out of nowhere, from the ridiculous to the sublime, Trigg found himself thinking about his father again. Their final conversation hung in his memory with stinging vividness. Just before he'd passed away in the infirmary, the old man had reached up, clutched Trigg's hand in both of his, and whispered, watch over your brother. Caught off guard, Trigg had just nodded and stammered out that he would, of course he would. But soon afterward, he realized that his dad, in his final moments, must have been confused about which son he was talking to. There was no reason he'd asked Trigg to look after Kale. It would be like assigning the safekeeping of a wampa to a Kawakian monkey lizard. What's wrong with you anyway? Kale asked from across the table. I'm fine. Come on, fess up. Trigg pushed the tray aside. I don't see how they can serve us this stuff day after day, that's all. Hey, that reminds me. As if on cue, Kale flicked his eyes over at Trigg's tray. You gonna eat that? When the alarm shrilled out the end of the meal, he and Kale stood up and slipped through the mess hall along with the sea of other inmates. From overhead observation decks, a retinue of uniformed Imperial corrections officers and armed stormtroopers stood watch, observing their passage into the common area with soulless black eyes. Down below, the prisoners sauntered in packs, muttering and laughing among themselves, deliberately dragging out the process as much as possible to exploit whatever small amount of leniency the guards granted them. There was a sticky, smelly closeness to their unwashed bodies, and Trigg thought of the phrase meat nest again and felt a little nauseated. This whole place was a meat nest. Little by little, with studied casualness, he and Kale slowed down, falling farther back from the crowd. Although he didn't say a word, a subtle change had already worked its way through Kale's posture. Straightening his spine and shoulders, a serene vigilance moving over his face, supplanting the old, insouciant gleam. His eyes darted right and left now, never stopping anywhere for longer than a moment or two. You ready for this? he asked, barely moving his lips. Sure, Trigg said, nodding. You? Full on. Nothing about Kale's face seemed to indicate that he was speaking at all. Remember when we get down there. It's going to be close quarters. Whatever you do, always maintain eye contact. Don't look away for a second. Got it. And if anything starts to feel wrong about it, and I mean anything whatsoever, we just walk away. Now Kale did glance at his brother's face, perhaps catching a whiff of his apprehension. I don't think Sixtus would try anything, but I can't vouch for miss. Dad never trusted him. Maybe, Trey started and stopped himself. He realized that he was about to suggest calling off the whole deal, not because he was nervous, although he certainly was, but because Kale seemed to be having second thoughts too. We can do this, Kale went on. Dad taught us everything we need to know. The whole thing should take no more than a minute or two and we'll be back out there and back in full view. Any longer than that and it gets dangerous. He jerked his head around and looked hard at Trig. And I go first, clear? Trig nodded and felt a hand drop on his shoulder, stopping him in his tracks. Trig turned and looked up at the figure standing in front of him. You. It was the piggy-eyed guard whose name he didn't remember, peering back at him through a pair of tinted, decidedly non-regulation optic shields. What are you doing all the way back here? Trigg tried to answer but found his reply lodged somewhere just beneath his gullet. Kale stepped in, offering up an easy, disarming smile. Just walking, sir. Was I talking to you, convict? The guard said, and without waiting for an answer, pivoted his attention back to Trigg. Well? He's right, sir, Trigg said. We were just walking. What? You're too good to move along with the rest of the scum? We try to avoid scum whenever possible, Trigg said, and then added, sir. The guard's eyes slitted behind the lenses. You yanking me, convict? No, sir. Cause the last maggot that yanked me is doing a month in the hole. Understood, sir. The guard glowered at him, twitching his head slightly to one side, as if searching out some angle at which Triggs' unblemished teenage face might somehow become threatening, or even make sense amid this larger mass of incarcerated criminals. Watching his expression, Trigg punished himself by imagining a glimmer of recognition in those squinty eyes. And for an instant, he thought how bizarre it might be if the guard had said, You're Von Longo's boys, aren't you? I heard what happened to your father. He was a good man. But of course, no guard on this barge thought Longo had been a good man, or even bothered to learn his name. And now he was dead and already so completely forgotten that he might as well have never lived. And the guard just shook his head. Move along, the guard muttered and walked away. The moment they were out of earshot, Kale elbowed Trigg in the shoulder. We try to avoid the scum whenever possible. A tiny grin dimpled the corners of Kale's mouth. What? Did you just make that up on the spot? Trigg was unable to restrain a smile of his own. It felt liberating. Probably because he couldn't remember the last time he'd allowed himself anything less than a troubled grimace. You think he bought it? I think you almost bought it. Kale reached up without looking over and tousled his fingers through Triggs' hair. Keep smarting off like that, Convict, and he will be down in solitary with the real dangerous types. I hear there's a couple of hard guys down there now locked up tight, Trigg said. Could be our future customers. Kale favored him with a glance of approval. You've got a lot more of Dad in you than I thought, he said. And, with one last look at the prisoners in front of them, nodded ever so slightly to the left. Come on, follow me. And don't get crazy, okay? Sure. Triggs sensed Kale slowing his pace, dropping back several strides, scarcely enough to be noticed, and adjusted his step to match his brother's. Up ahead, the main concourse broke off into three prongs, branching off into a series of lesser throughways that crisscrossed the detention levels at every imaginable vector and angle. During his time aboard, Trig had made it his business to learn as much about the Purge's layout as possible. Eavesdropping on conversations between guards and maintenance droids, he learned early on that there were six main detention levels, each one housing about twenty to thirty individual holding cells. Above that was the mess hall followed by the admin offices, prison staff quarters, and the infirmary. Nobody talked much about solitary down at the bottom of the barge, nor was there much speculation about the literally hundreds of meters of narrow access routes, sublevels, and dimly lit concourses that honeycombed every level. Falling into single file, Kale and Trigg slipped through an open gateway, striding along the damp prefab walls, down a flight of steps, deeper in the jaundiced, subcutaneous bowels of Genpop. The air down here immediately became thicker, darker, and dramatically less breathable, on its way to an array of refurbished air scrubbers before circulating back through the barge. Well, well, a voice said, the Longo Brothers ride again. Trigg caught a quick breath, hoping it didn't sound like a gasp. In front of him, Kale froze. Instinctively extending a hand behind him, and both of them peered into the open space that made up their immediate future. It took no extra time for Trig's vision to adjust. He could already make out the forms of several inmates, all members of the Delphanian face gang, and in front of them, or miss. Whether Miss's nearly vertical sneer was a genetic accident or the result of one of his legendary knife fights was a matter of perpetual speculation among the other inmates. Below the flattened suede accordion of his nose, a row of mismatched tribal piercings dangled from the drooping lower lip. Collected like trophies from all the other crew leaders while Miss and his boss, Sixtus Cleft, had slowly consolidated the face gang's position as the Purge's preeminent prison crew. You're right on time, Miss said, piercings jingling as he spoke. Kale nodded. We're always prompt. An admirable trait for a prison rat. That's why you chose to do business with us. One of many reasons, Miss said. I'm sure. Kale smiled. Did you bring the payment? Oh, yes. Miss produced a sibilant gurgle that might have been laughter, and extended one spade claw hand, pointing down at the empty floor in front of him. It's right there, in front of you. Don't you see it? Trig sensed, or perhaps only imagined, his older brother stiffening, preparing for trouble, and willed Kale to stay calm. It appeared to work, for the time being at least. Kale kept his posture erect and didn't look away, careful to keep his own voice steady and calm. Is this some kind of a joke? Perhaps. Miss looked at the Delphanian foot soldiers standing on either side of him, grinning and sniggering. Maybe you just don't share our sense of humor. Our deal with Sixtus. Sixtus is dead. Kale stared at him. What? Terrible tragedy miss was almost whispering and the mushy sibilance in between words trig realized was definitely laughter this time accompanied by the faint metallic jingle of his piercings ICO o Wembley found him in his cell this morning with his throat <gasps> slashed i'm the new skipper now he stopped and then his voice abruptly frosted over and alas The terms of our deal have changed. You can't do that. Trig cut in, unable to hold back any longer. Sixtus and our dad... No, it's all right. Kale said, still not taking his eyes off Miss. And when he spoke again, he sounded absolutely calm. I'm just sorry things worked out this way. Miss appeared genuinely curious. Oh? None of this is necessary. Kale's voice was so casual it was almost like listening to their father talk. That same mellifluous, we can work this out inflection that had gotten them out of so many dicey exchanges in the past. We've built a mutually beneficial relationship here. It's crazy to jeopardize it with rash decisions. Rash decisions? Kale waved a hand in the air. Of course, we'll be happy to tell you where the blasters and power packs are hidden, free of charge. Take them with my compliments. Consider it my gift to you as the new leader of the Face Gang. And everyone walks out of here to do business another day. A generous proposal. Miss seemed to consider the idea for a long moment. There's only one problem. What's that? Miss glanced at the Delphanian inmates slathering next to him on either side. I already promised my men that they could kill you I see Kale hove up a dramatic sigh in that case I guess we don't have a deal huh no I suppose there's only one thing left to do or miss tilted his chin upward slightly and that would be at first none of them moved and Trigg had no idea what was going to happen. Then, before he realized it, Kale's hand blurred forward, moving faster than Trigg could even see, his fingers hooking down to rip the piercings out of Miss's face. The Delphanian shrieked in surprise and pain, and one of his hands flew up to cover his wounded, spurting lips and nose. Simultaneously, the two inmates who had been flanking him burst forward in a rush and Kale grabbed his brother's shoulder, spun him hard around, and thrust him back in the direction they'd come. Run! Kale shouted, and they did. Trigg first, Kale behind him, both of them flying back up the corridor they'd just come down. Behind them, the Delphanians' boots clanged off the metal floor, and Trigg could hear them shouting, coming closer. There was no way he and his brother could possibly outrun them. And even if by some quirk of fate they did escape, Or Miss would be waiting for them tomorrow, and the next day, and... Rounding the bend, Trigg almost collided with a guard standing directly in front of him. The ICO put up both hands in a reflexive warding-off gesture, and the sudden stop that kept Trigg from slamming into him was followed an instant later by Kale hitting him from behind. What's going on here? the guard asked. Nothing, sir. We just trick started, and it occurred to him that there was no reason why the guards should be this far down the walkways to begin with. And then, between the pounding rhythm of his own heart, he realized something else. The purge had fallen absolutely silent. The vibrations that had unsettled him, broadcasting their emanations up through the bones of his feet, ankles, and knees, had gone completely still. For the first time since he'd come aboard the engines had stopped. Hey, waste, Zahara Cody said. Are we there yet? The 2-1-B surgical droid looked up at her with a blank stare. It had been in the process of injecting a syringe of Colto into the left arm of the dug inmate, lying in the oversized med center bunk between them. Within seconds of receiving the injection, the dug writhed and rolled up onto its back, twitching its lower legs beneath the sheet, then stiffened, and lapsed into a very convincing state of rigor mortis. Congratulations, Zahara said. You killed him. Looks like you saved the Empire another 400 credits. Reaching over, she tapped the surgical droid on the shoulder. Job well done. Way to be a team player. The 2-1-B looked at her in something like alarm. But But I didn't. Let me do a quick test just to confirm time of death. Zahara reached down and rolled the dug sideways, pushing it over, until it fell out of bed with a thud. Seconds later, the inmate sat up with a squeal of displeasure, scuttling back up to its bunk where it glared at her balefully and muttered some black condemnatory oath under its breath. Looks like another miracle recovery, Zahara said and smiled. Another one of your many skills, apparently. A most irregular approach, Waste intoned and something deep inside his torso, cowling clicked and whirred. Don't you think that given the patient's ongoing complaints, we should run some additional tests? Unless I'm mistaken, this particular patient's main complaint is with the food. Zahara glanced at the dug. And maybe one of the several different prison gangs that want his scalp for overdue loan payments. That's about right, isn't it, Tugnut? The Doug snarled and jerked one hand up in a gesture that transcended language barriers. Then went back to faking its own death. Scramble up an orderly droid, Zahara said. Have him taken back to his cell. She looked back at the 2 1B. You're aware, Waste, that you still haven't answered my initial question. Excuse Excuse me. me? Are we there yet? Dr. Cody. If you're referring to our ETA at attention Moon Gradient 7, the Purge is a prison barge waste. Where else would we be headed, Wild Space?" She waited patiently to see if the 2-1-B was going to favor her with another of its flat, implacable glances. Throughout the last three months of working alongside the droid, Zahara Cody had come to think of herself as a connoisseur of such reactions. The way that some people collected rare pseudogenetic polymorph species or trinkets from older, pre-imperial cultures. We've already dropped out of hyperspace. Our engines have been stopped for almost an hour now, and we're just sitting here stock still. So that can only mean one thing, right? We must be there. Actually, Doctor, my uplink to the NaviComputer indicates that… Hey, Doc. A blunt finger reached out from behind Zahara and prodded her somewhere in the vicinity of her lower spine. We there yet? Zahara looked over at the Deveronian inmate, sprawled languorously on his side on the bed behind her, then turned back at her surgical droid. "'See, Waste, it's the question on everyone's lips.' "'No, I'm serious, Doc,' the Deveronian groaned, peering up at her from the depths of melancholy. His right horn had been snapped off mid-trunk. Giving his face a peculiarly lopsided look, And he poked himself in the abdomen and groaned. "'One of my livers is going bad.' I can feel it, thinking maybe I caught something in the shower. May I offer a more likely diagnosis? The 2-1-B scurried eagerly around Zahara, already exchanging tools in its servo-grips as the internal components of its diagnostic computer flickered beneath its torso sheath. Liver damage in your species is not uncommon. In many cases, your silver-based blood results in depleted oxygen due to the low-level addiction to the recreational use of... Hey, interface! The Deveronian sat up, suddenly the robust picture of perfect health, and grabbed the 21B's pincer. What are you saying about my species? Easy gat. He doesn't mean anything by it. Zahara placed a hand on the inmate's wrist until he released the droid. Then, turning to the 21B Waste, why don't you go check out what's happening with the Trandoshan in B 17, huh? His temp's up again, and I don't like the last white counts I saw this morning. I doubt he'll make it through today. Oh, I concur. The droid brightened. According to my programming at middle State Medical Academy. Right. So I'll meet you later for afternoon rounds, all right? The 21B hesitated, seeming briefly to entertain the idea of objecting, then walked away clucking softly to itself in dismay. Sahara watched it go its gangling legs and oversized feet passing between the rows of bunks that lined the infirmary on either side. Only half of those beds were full, but that was still more than she would have preferred. As chief medical officer on the purge, she knew that at any given time, a large percentage of her patients were dogging it, either prolonging their stay in med bay or faking it entirely to stay out of Genpop. But it had been a long trip and supplies were low, even with the 2-1-B, the prospect of a legitimate medical emergency. You okay, Doc? Looking down, she realized that the Deveronian was watching her from his bed, fidgeting nonchalantly with his broken horn. Sorry? I said you alright. You look a little, uh, well, I don't know. I'm fine, Gat. Thanks. Hey. The inmate glanced off in the direction that the surgical droid had gone. That bucket of bolts won't hold it against me, you think? Who? Waste? She smiled. Believe me, he's a paragon of scientific objectivity. Just throw some obscure symptoms at him and he'll be your best friend. You really think we're almost there? She shrugged. I don't know. You know how it is. Nobody tells me anything. Right, the devish said, and shook his head with a chuckle. Aboard the barge, there were a few phrases that circulated among gen-pop endlessly. Are we there yet? And they expect us to eat this stuff? Were chief among them, but nobody tells me anything was also a big favorite. Over months of service, Zahara had adopted these phrases as well, much to the chagrin of the warden and many of the ICOs, most of whom held themselves up as an example of superior species. Zahara knew what they said about her. Among the guards, no real effort was made to keep it subtle. Too much time spent down in the med bay with the scum and droids, and the little rich girl had started to go native, preferring the company of inmates and synthetics to her own kind, corrections officers and stormtroopers. Most of the guards had stopped talking to her completely after the situation two weeks ago. She didn't suppose she blamed them. They were a notoriously tight-knit group and seemed to function with a groupthink that she found downright nauseating. Even the inmates, her regulars, the ones she saw on a daily basis, had noticed a change in the way she'd started spending extra time training waste, preparing the 21B not as her assistant anymore, but as her replacement. And although there hadn't been any official response from the warden, she could only assume that he'd received her resignation. After all, she'd walked into his office and slammed it down on his desk. There was no way that she could keep working here. Not after what happened with Von Longo. Take a girl from a wealthy family of Corellian financiers and tell her she'll never have a care in the world. Ship her off to the best schools. Tell her there's a spot waiting for her in the intergalactic banking clan. All she has to do is not mess up. Keep her nose clean uphold the highest standards of politics, culture, and good manners, and ignore the fact that compared with what she's used to, 99% of the galaxy is still hungry, sick, and uneducated. Embrace the empire with its quaint lack of diplomatic subtlety and strive to overlook the increasingly uncomfortable squeeze of Lord Vader's ever-tightening fist. Flash to 15 years later, the girl, now a woman, decides to go to Rinal to study, of all things, medicine, that dirtiest of sciences, better left to droids, full of blood and pus and contagion, hardly what her parents had hoped for. But the decision is made to indulge her, based on the hope that this is just an idealistic whim and soon enough little Zahara will be back to take her rightful position at the family table. After all, she's young. She has plenty of time except it doesn't play out that way. Two years into Renal, Zahara meets a surgeon twice her age, a craggy veteran of hundreds of humanitarian missions beyond the core worlds, who opens her eyes to the true need of the galaxy around her. The mismatched love affair runs its course predictably enough, but even after that part of it winds down, Zahara can't forget the picture he's painted for her a mural of staggering need, beings whose desperation is utterly beyond her ken. He reminds her that the poor are out there in their countless millions, human and non-human alike. Young ones dying of malnutrition and sickness, while the galaxy's upper echelons bask in self-induced oblivion. You can either live with something like that, the surgeon tells her, on what turns out to be one of their last nights together, or you can't. And it turns out she can't. After being universally rejected by various aid groups because of her lack of experience, Zahara makes the decision to go to work for the Empire, which her family reluctantly accepts. At least it's a known entity. But in a capacity that leaves her parents speechless, stupefied, and outraged. No daughter of theirs is going to work on an Imperial prison barge. The indignity of it is beyond all scale. Yet here I am. Zahara thought now, queen of her own miniature kingdom after all, duchess of the empty bunks and our lady of the perpetual stomach ache, involuntary lust object of a hundred emotionally frustrated prison guards and deprived stormtroopers, dispenser of medicine, charged with keeping the inmates of the Imperial prison barge purge alive long enough to be permanently detained on some remote prison moon. The irony, of course was that in a standard week's time, or whenever they finally arrived at their destination, she would be going back to her father and mother. If not exactly hat in hand, then close enough. Her mother would sniff and scowl, her brother would jeer, but her father would throw his arms around his little girl. And after the acceptable amount of time had passed, her penance would be complete and she would be welcomed back into the fold. And her time aboard the barge would become what they'd thought it would be all along. An adventure in her youth. A charming dinner anecdote for diplomats. Oh, you'll never believe how our little girl decided to spend her youth. Looking through the medbay again, Zahara felt a thin tremor of uncertainty steal over her and it away. But like most aspects of her personality, it didn't go without a fight. Instead, unbidden. The image of Von Longo floated back up into her memory, the man's bloody face trying to talk to her through the ventilator, clutching her hand in both of his, asking to see his boys one last time, begging her to bring them to him so that he could speak to them in private. Moments later, the cloud of heavy menace emerged behind her back, and she turned to see Jareth Sartoris, close enough that she could actually smell his skin speaking through thin lips that hardly seemed to move. Paying your respects, Doctor. Longo had died later that day, and Zahara Cody decided that she had flown her last voyage with the Purge and the Empire. The next step would be contacting her parents and letting them know she was coming home. Luxurious clothing and fine crystal had never been her first choice, but at least she'd be able to sleep at night. And in the evenings, she would sit down to dinner with the wealthy and proud, and forget about what had happened with Von Longo and Jareth Sartoris. Is this really what you want? Zahara shook it off. In any case, she'd always assumed she'd have lots of time to think about it before the barge got where it was going. Plenty of time to make up her mind. Except now, the engines had stopped. Had been stopped for over an hour. From across the infirmary, another voice, one of the other inmates, cried out, Hey, Doc, are we there yet? This time, Zahara didn't answer. Jareth Sartoris made his way down the narrow gangway outside the guard's quarters, massaging his temples as he walked. He had a headache. Nothing new there, but this one was something special. A vice grip across his temporal lobes that made him feel like he'd been gassed with some kind of low-grade neurotoxin in his sleep. The greasy smear of breakfast down the back of his throat hadn't helped. He'd been awake even before the warden's summons came through. After working third shift last night, he'd toppled into his bunk early this morning and lapsed into restless unconsciousness. But two hours later, the abrupt silence had awakened him the feeling of his tightly coiled world spinning off its axis. They were seven standard days out, so why had the engines fallen silent? Sartoris had gotten dressed, grabbed some lukewarm calf and a reheated bantha patty from the mess, and headed down the hall toward the warden's office, hoping to build up enough mindless momentum to keep him going as far as he needed. To his right, the turbolift doors opened. Three other guards, Vesec, Austin and some pompadoured newbie came out, falling into step behind him. They had to walk single file to fit comfortably down the hall. Sartorius didn't break stride or even glance back at them. Me and the guy's cap? Austin's voice piped up after a respectful pause. We were, you know, wondering if you could shed a little light on what's going on. Sartorius shook his head, still not looking back. What's that? I heard we blew out both thrusters completely, Vesec put in. Word is, we're just sitting here somewhere outside the Unknown Regions waiting for a tow. Austin sniggered. Barge full of stranded convicts, I'm sure we're top priority for the Empire. Stang, Vesec said. Maybe they'll just decide to leave us drifting out here, right? Ask the Rook. Austin poked the pompadoured guard walking in front of him. Hey, Armitage, you think they'll rescue us? He sniggered, not waiting for the kid to respond. He'd probably like it. Suit his artistic temperament, right, Armitage? The newbie just ignored him and kept walking. How long did you spend on your air this morning, Rook? You open Dr. Cody's taking an interest? All right. Sartorius snapped a glance up at them. Belay that noise, understand? Nobody spoke the rest of the way to the warden's office. Cloth's office had been tricked out to look larger than it actually was—light colors, hollow murals, and a colossal rectilinear viewscreen facing out the star-strewn expanse. But Sartorius had always found the effect paradoxically oppressive. Some time ago, he'd noticed a blown voxel in the corner of the desert landscape above Cloth's desk—a missed stitch in the digital fabric. Ever since then, something about the second-hand technology seemed to be pushing in on him, and now his eyes always felt as if they were being tricked, lulled into a false sense of openness. First, the bad news, Cloth said. He was standing in his usual position, hands clasped behind his back, looking out the view screen. Our thrusters are seriously damaged, probably beyond repair. And as I'm sure you know, we're still seven standard days out from our destination." One of the other guards, the rookie probably, let out a nearly inaudible groan. Sartoris only heard it because he was standing next to him. However, the warden continued, there is a positive side. Cloth turned slowly to face them. Upon first glance, his face was the usual blunt bureaucratic hatchet, slightly curved and angular upper lip gray-rimmed eyes, and bluish silver bags of freshly shaven cheeks. Only after spending a certain amount of time with the man did you come to know the soft thing residing within that calculated outer shell. A spineless, gelatinous creature that exuded nothing so much as the tremulous anxiety of being drawn out and exposed. It seems the Navicomputer has identified an Imperial vessel, Cloth said. A Star Destroyer, actually within this same system while our attempts to make contact have met with no reply we do have enough power to make our approach he paused here apparently in anticipation of applause or at least a round of relieved sighs. but sartorius and the others just looked at him a destroyer austin asked and they're not responding to our call cloth didn't answer for a moment he touched his chin fingering it thoughtfully a pompous and disaffected gesture Sartoris had seen a thousand times and had come to loathe in his own special way. There's more to it than that, he said. According to our bioscans, there's only a handful of life forms on board. How many's a handful? Vesic wanted to know. Ten. Perhaps twelve. Ten or twelve? Vesic shook his head. Sounds like a scanner issue destroyers can carry a crew of ten thousand or more thank you close said dryly I'm well aware of the standard Imperial specs sorry sir it's just either our equipment is undergoing some serious malfunction or or there's something else going on up there it was the first time Sartorius had spoken in the office and he was surprised at the hoarseness in his voice something that we don't want any part of The others all turned to look at him. For what felt like a long time after that, no one spoke. Then the warden cleared his throat. What are you saying, Captain? There's no reason the Empire would just abandon an entire Star Destroyer out here in the middle of nowhere without a good reason. He's right, Austin said. "Maybe." Internal atmosphere diagnostics show no sign of any known toxin or contamination, Cloth said. Of course, it's always possible that our instruments are misreading how many life forms are on board. We screen for numerous variables electrical brain activity, pulse, motion, any number of those things could skew the reading. In any case, he smiled. A wholly unconvincing dramatization that ought to have involved invisible wires and hooks on either side of his mouth. The most critical factor is that we may be able to salvage equipment for our thrusters and get back on course before we're completely behind schedule. To that end, I'll be sending a scouting party up. Captain Sartoris, along with ICOs Austin, Vesek, and Armitage, and the mechanical engineers to see what they can salvage. We anticipate docking within the hour. Questions? There were none, and Cloth dismissed them in the usual fashion, by turning his back and letting them find their own way out. Sartorius was about to follow them when the warden's voice stopped him. Captain? Stopping in the doorway, Sartorius drew a breath and felt the ache in his head become a deeper, more impacted pounding, like a gargantuan infected tooth somewhere in his frontal sinus. The door closed behind him, and it was just the two of them in what felt like an increasingly shrunken space. Am I making a mistake sending you up with these men? Excuse me, sir. Sir? Cloth's smile rematerialized, a wisp of its former self. Now that's a word I haven't heard from you in a long time, Captain. We haven't seen each other much lately. I'm aware that this voyage has been particularly challenging for you personally, Cloth said, and Sartoris found himself hoping fervently that the Warden wouldn't start stroking his chin again. If he did, Sartoris wasn't sure he could rein in the urge to punch him straight in his pompous and disaffected face. After what happened two weeks ago, in many ways I expected your resignation right alongside Dr. Cody's. Why? She saw you kill an inmate in cold blood. It was her word against mine. Your antiquated interrogation techniques aren't appropriate anymore, Captain. You're costing the Empire more information than you're retrieving. All due respect, sir. Longo was a nobody. A grifter. We'll never know now, will we? Sartoris felt his fists clenching at his sides, until his nails burrowed into his palms, delivering stinging pain deep into the skin. You want me off your boat, Warden? You just say the word. On the contrary, you may consider this mission an opportunity to redeem yourself. If not in my eyes, then certainly in the eyes of the Empire, to which we both owe so very much. Is that understood? Yes, sir. Cloth turned and scrutinized him as if for any sign of sarcasm or mockery. In his decades of service, Jareth Sartoris had been to the very edges of the galaxy, living under conditions he wouldn't wish on his worst enemy. He'd had to sleep in places and commit unspeakable deeds that he would have given entire body organs to forget. That simple, yes sir, didn't taste any worse than any of the rest of it. So we're clear then? Cloth asked. "'Crystal,' Sartoris replied. And when Cloth turned to show him his back, it wasn't a moment too soon. The Warden's office was bigger than any other on the barge, but it was still too small for Sartoris. And as the cooler air of the outer corridor hit him, he realized he'd sweated through the armpits of his uniform completely. "'You keep looking out there,' Kale said. "'Sooner or later you're gonna see something you won't like.' I already have." Trigg was stationed in his usual spot, in the detention cell, gazing through the bars. Across the hall, directly opposite them, the two Rhodian inmates, who'd been there ever since he and Kale and their father had been brought aboard, stood glowering back at him. Sometimes, they muttered to each other in a language Trigg didn't recognize, gesturing at the brothers and making noises that sounded like laughter. Now, though, They just stared at him. At least two hours had passed since the Purge had gone into total lockdown. Trig wasn't sure when all this had happened. It was one of the first things the Empire took from you when they took your freedom. The sense of passing time. It was information you didn't deserve. As a result, Trig relied on his body to tell him when it was time to eat, sleep, and exercise. Now it was telling him to be afraid. The noise from the rest of the hall was louder than he expected. Standing here next to the bars, Trigg could make out individual voices, prisoners bellowing in basic and a thousand other languages, demanding to know why the barge had stopped and how much longer it was going to be until they got going again. The deviation from routine had left them restless and giddy. Someone was screaming for a drink of water, someone else wanted food. Another voice shouted and spluttered with hysterical, gibbering laughter. There was a sonorous, deep-chested growl. Probably a Wookiee, Trigg thought. Though for the most part, the ones he'd seen on board kept to themselves unless threatened. Someone else kept hammering something metallic against the wall of their cell, a steady, methodical wham, wham, wham. You can go crazy listening to something like that, Trigg thought. You can go right out of your mind. All right, that's enough. A guard's voice broke in. The next maggot that makes so much as a peep goes straight down to the hole. Silence for a moment, yawning, and then an anxious titter. It brought another, followed by a wild yodeling shriek, and the entire detention level erupted in an avalanche of chatter, louder than ever. Trigg put his hands to his ears and turned back to the corridor. Then he jerked backward in surprise. Wembley! He said. He startled me. Two dead boys, ICO Wembley said with real regret. And I liked you guys, too. Decent fellas. Not that it counts for much aboard this rotten bucket of garbage, but... The guard sighed. He was a fat man in his late fifties, with a loosely knit face, veins on his nose and lines cut deeply beneath his watery eyes. Eyes made for crying. A mouth made for laughter, shoulders made for shrugging. Wembley was a walking miracle of compulsive self-expression. I sure I'm gonna miss you. Tell you true. What are you talking about? Cale asked. There was a click, and a synthesized voice buzzed from somewhere behind Wembley's head. You haven't heard, or missed us, but a ten thousand credit bounty on your heads. Trigg glanced at the B L X unit standing behind Wembley's shoulder. For some reason, the labor droid had adopted the guard, following him everywhere, and for reasons equally nebulous, Wembley allowed it. As one of the senior corrections officers aboard the Purge, he was technically permitted a droid assistant, though Trigg knew of no other guard, including Captain Sartorius himself, who actually tolerated one. Ten thousand, Kale muttered from his bunk. He's got that much? Don't tell me you're shocked. Wembley looked pained and laced his hands over his formidable belly, almost dyspeptic with incredulity. Please don't tell me that. You yanked out half his face. What did you expect? The ugly half. Kao flopped down in his bunk with a muffled groan. I probably improved his looks. I very much doubt that to be true. In my experience. Wembley cut the droid off without hesitation. Improved his looks, huh? Make sure you explain that to him while his flunkies slit your throats." He glanced across the hall at the Rodian inmates staring through their bars, the intensity of their regard suddenly making more sense to Trigg. He guessed that they were probably already spending that 10,000 credits. "'Hey Wembley, you're a guard,' he said. "'Doesn't that mean you're supposed to guard us?' Oh, that's a good one, Kate. Make sure you write it down. In case you didn't notice, preventing you scofflaws from offing each other isn't exactly in our job description. The Warden sees it as saving the Empire the trouble. He swung out one baggy hand at the rest of the detention level outside the cell. As far as your colleagues out there are concerned, when we come out of lockdown, that's the dinner bell ringing on your sorry necks. And there's nothing you can do about it? Trigg asked. Hey, I'm warning you, aren't I? Yes. That's right, the BLX echoed, and at no small risk to our own well-being either,
1: if Captain Sartoris knew.
0: Listen, Wembley said, his tone shifting a little, lowering his voice to the very brink of an apology. Right now, I've got bigger worries. We're getting ready to send a boarding party to the Star Destroyer. The Warden's not saying anything, but... Wait a second, Kale said. Star Destroyer? Never computer found one drifting out here. A derelict. We just docked, close sending a boarding party to scavenge parts. If they can't find anything to get the main thrusters running again, who knows how long we'll be sitting here. That reminds me, sir. If I'm not mistaken, I'm due for an oil bath this afternoon. If you can spare my assistance for an hour or two. If not, I can always. Take your time, Wembley said dryly then turned back to Kale and Trigg. Listen, I've got a blow. Do me a favor and lay low a while, huh? I'll do everything I can to keep you alive until we get where we're going. Kale nodded. Thanks, he said, but this time the gratitude sounded sincere. I know you're walking a line just coming out here to see us, and we appreciate it, right Trigg? Huh? Trigg looked up. Oh, yeah, right. The guard shook his head and glanced back at Kale. Keep an eye on this one, will you? All the time. Wembley pursed his lips. I'll drop by again next time I feel like getting abused. If you live that long, which I doubt. He turned and waddled away, humming under his breath. A wide-hipped man whose girth enjoyed its own unique relationship with the galaxy's greater gyroscopic nature. The BLX followed along obediently afterward. When guard and droid rounded the corner and disappeared, Trigg turned to look straight out of the cell again. Across the hall, the Rodians were still staring at him. Sartoris led the others up the stairs from the admin level to the barge's pilot station, walking across it up to the docking shaft. It was a cylinder that made his throat feel tight particularly now that he was surrounded with nine men, Austin, vesic Armitage, along with four mechanical engineers and a pair of stormtroopers who'd swaggered in at the last second like they owned the place. Cloth had sent the troopers along as an afterthought, ordering them to join the boarding party just before they'd started up. Sartoris wondered what had changed the warden's mind. If there was something aboard the destroyer that they needed to worry about, two stormtroopers weren't going to help the situation much, but there is nothing to worry about up there, Sartoris told himself, dropping the thought like a pebble into the deep well of his subconscious and waiting to hear some sort of telltale plink of response. The silence that came back wasn't particularly reassuring. The tube lift carried them steadily upward, and Sartoris watched the faint green lights strafe the faces of the other men seeking any echo of his own apprehensions. But their expressions were pictures of bland neutrality, obedience as a rarefied psychological state. Sartoris supposed he ought to be thankful for guards that just followed orders as opposed to questioning them. He'd worked with both types in the past and had unfailingly preferred the company of the former. At least strangely, until now, when some part of him would have appreciated a little back and forth about the nature of their destination. It was Austin, predictably, who ultimately broke the silence. What do you think happened up there, Cap? That there's only ten lifeforms still aboard? Warden says zero contamination, vesic said, so it's gotta be a malfunction on our end. So how come they never acknowledged? Maybe our communications suite got scrambled along with our bioscanners. Negative. One of the engineers, Greeley, shook his head. Communications are 5-by. Ditto the scanners. It it all checks out. He flicked his eyes upward. It's just a ghost ship, that's all. Austin gave him a look. What? A derelict, you know. uh, Ships get scuttled, abandoned by the fleet, left behind. Empire doesn't like to talk about them, but they're out there. So where's the crew? Evacuated, Greeley said. Or? He moistened his lips and tried to shrug it off. Who knows? Great, Vesic sighed. A destroyer that can't fly on its own, and we're going aboard to scavenge parts. This one's got clothes name written all over it. He rolled his eyes at Sartoris. Is there a greater plan at work here, Captain? Or are we just winging this one? When we get up there, Sartoris said, I want two groups of five. Vesik, that means you, me, and Austin will go with Greeley." He pointed at one of the engineers, and the second man standing next to him. And Blandings? The rest of you, Armitage, Quartermass, Fibes, stay with the troopers. We'll reconnoitre back at the docking shaft in an hour. You want one of us to go with you? One of the stormtroopers asked. Why would I want that? The trooper brandished his blaster rifle. Just in case. Sartoris was aware of Vesic and Austin looking at him, awaiting his reply. I think we'll be fine, he said. Stay with Armitage's group and let me know what you find. What exactly are we looking for? Austin asked. I've uploaded a list of the parts under each of your data links, along with a detailed layout of the destroyer's concourse and maintenance levels. I don't have to tell you this is a big ship. Maintain strict comlink contact at all times. I don't want to be sending out search-parties to look for my search-parties. You follow? The platform stopped moving long enough for the hatch above them to unseal with a faint hydraulic hiss. Then it lifted the rest of the way up, into the landing bay. At first, nobody said a word. Sartoris thought he'd been prepared for how big it would be. But after two solid months aboard the Purge, he was simply overwhelmed by what awaited him here. He'd never actually set foot on a Destroyer before, although he'd seen smaller Imperial warships and had assumed this would be like those, only bigger. But it wasn't. It was more like its own planet. The docking shaft had delivered them into the Durasteel Cathedral of the Destroyer's cavernous main hangar, its vaulted ceilings and paneled walls soaring upward and outward in an ecstasy of forced perspective. As Sartoris stared down those long planes into some barely visible vanishing point, he reminded himself that he was looking at less than a tenth of the destroyer's actual 1600 meters. He needed to keep that figure in mind if he didn't want to spend his entire time aboard wrestling with the enormity of it. He took in a deep breath. The cold air tasted like metal shavings and the sterile out-of-the-box smell of long-chain polymers and let it out. For a man with a horror of tight spaces, standing here should have been a tonic, but instead of relief he only felt some arcane new species of panic fluttering in the pit of his stomach, this time in reaction to the seemingly limitless rebate of pure space. He grunted at the absurdity of it. Apparently, he'd gone from claustrophobia to ballroom syndrome in one quick leap, without any time to appreciate the difference. Uh, Cap? Sartoris didn't bother looking over. What is it, Austin? All due respect, sir. I think we're going to need more than an hour to look through all this. Stick to the plan, he said. We'll start with an hour, and check back then. Report anything out of the ordinary. Oh bloody places out of the ordinary, Austin muttered. And one of the engineers, Greeley, he thought, let out a gruff chuckle. Come on, Sartoris said. Let's go. We're wasting time. Hold up a second, Cap. Vesic pointed off in the opposite direction. What's all that? Over there. Sartoris looked behind him and saw several of what looked like smaller attack and landing craft scattered across the hangar floor. Spacecraft, he said. TIE fighters from the look of them. Yeah, but those don't all look like ties, chief. Sartoris took a closer look and saw that Vesic was right. There were TIE ships there, but there were also four or five other craft mixed in. Long-range freighters and transport shuttles, along with something that could have been a type of modified Corellian Corvette. Captured enemy spacecraft, Sartoris said, masking his uncertainty with impatience. Who knows? He snapped a glance at Greeley. Any of them have the parts we need? Probably not. Then, he stopped. They all saw it at the same time. Something across the bay was moving behind the TIE Fighters. Its shadow bulking forward, slanting across the deck toward them. Behind him, he was aware of the troopers already going for their blasters. What's that? Austin whispered. No life forms registering in the loading bay. Greeley said, voice trembling slightly. I don't... Hold it. Sartoris raised one hand without glancing back at them. Wait here. He took a step forward, wading deeper into the near-silence, tilting his head to get a better look across the poorly-lit hangar. His heart was beating too hard, he could feel it in his neck and wrists. And when he tried to swallow, his throat refused to cooperate. It was like trying to swallow a mouthful of sand. Only through sheer willpower was he able to avoid coughing. Standing motionless, Sartoris narrowed his eyes at the things lurking in the shadows behind the TIE Fighters. There were several of them, he realized now, stooping forward with gangling, flat-handed limbs, the familiar whine of servos accompanying their steady up-and-down gestures. Captain, one of the guards murmured behind him. Are they? Sartoris exhaled and drew in a fresh breath. Binary load lifters, he said, still going about their routines. Even as he said it, one of the CLL units stepped fully into view facing them dully for a moment before pivoting and stomping back to the stack of crates rising up behind it. Moving the same stack from one side of the hangar to the other, Sartoris thought, back and forth, endlessly. He heard someone in the boarding party let out a sigh and a nervous chuckle. Sartoris didn't bother acknowledging it. It would have been too much like acknowledging his own sense of relief. We've wasted enough time, he said. Let's move out. They found the hovercraft on the far side of the hangar. It was the standard utility model. A balky thing with grappling servo-mech arms fore and aft. Built for transporting fuel cells, but when they all climbed in, the thing sank to the floor. A pair of startled MSE droids skittered out from underneath, squealing anxiously and disappeared into the gloom. Overloaded, Bessek said, with just-our-luck exasperation. Well, looks like we're offing it. At first, it wasn't bad. To get to the lower maintenance levels, they had to walk down a series of wide and silent corridors through the destroyer's midsection until they found their way to the cavernous storage bays beneath the primary power generator. Cock in strange place, Austin muttered, his voice sounding alone down the long tunnel. What do you think happened? Who knows, Bessick said. Whatever it is, the faster we're shut of it, the happier I'll be. Heard that. I'll tell you one thing. I'd hate to be anywhere near Lord Vader when he finds out they abandoned ship. How much do you think it costs to replace a destroyer? Austin snorted. <laughs> More credits than you and I'll ever see. I ever tell you I saw him in person once? Who, Vader? Vesec nodded. My transport was due for a routine inspection. All of a sudden, my CO's having a major sphincter moment, scrambling us up to the flight deck, all spit and polish, making sure everything's extra shiny. Next thing I know, we're lined up in the hangar, and his transport's landing. And there he is. What's he like in person? Besik considered. Tall. Yeah? And you feel something when you look at him. Like... I don't know. Cold inside. Vesic shuddered. Kind of the way it feels here, actually. All right, Sartoris said. Let's can the banter. Ultimately, the request for quiet turned out to be unnecessary. By the time they were amidships, the conversation had dried up completely and the men had lapsed into a glum
1: and pensive silence. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And that was just the tip of the Death Trooper iceberg. Can your cosmic hearts handle what's still to come? because mine is drumming like an Ewok on a war drum. The suspense, irresistible. The interest, off the chart. My body is buzzing. I feel like R2 getting a jolt from them pesky was. It's like the Force is throwing a dance party in my bloodstream. Maybe it's just the morning coffee talking. Either way, it's one heck of a star-studded ride. Now hold up. We're ditching the quote for this series and keeping things crisp and clean, like the corridors of a Star Destroyer. This was a spur-of-the-moment decision to sprinkle some extra Halloween spook for y'all. So until our next cosmic episode, may the shadows be with you, and I will see you on the Sith side. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pig Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Networks. Star Wars Death Trooper was read to you by Rick Washington, sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.